0: are you looking for a quick keto meal that has not just a little bit of protein in it but also all the electrolytes vitamins protein fat and more that will meet one-third of your daily needs then let me introduce you to keto chow it's a quick and easy to mix shake that is designed to give you a complete ketogenic meal. You're able to customize the calories because you decide how much fat to add. Most people mix it with heavy whipping cream, but you can also use avocado oil, coconut cream, a little MCT oil, or any other fat of your choice. Keto Chow is designed specifically for people on the go to replace one to two meals in their day. It comes in eight flavors including chocolate, vanilla, chocolate peanut butter, cookies and cream, strawberry, mocha, banana, and salted caramel, in both individual meal samples as well as a large 21-meal bag. There's also a sample of All the Things bundle that has one of each flavor plus a Keto Chow blender bottle to get you started. Head on over to jimmylovesketochow.com and use the coupon code LLVLC to get 10% off of your first order. jimmylovesketochow.com Today's featured audio is from the 2017 Low Carb USA San Diego event. Visit LowCarbUSA.org for more information about the July 26th through the 29th 2018 Low Carb USA event in San Diego, California.
1: Ah, uh, Living the Vida Low Carb This show is changing lives We talking about your diet Trying to get you feeling bright. Cut up some avocados, fry some eggs Time to explore the longest running health podcast hosted by Jimmy more time to give up the crappy garbage. We're getting into ketosis. Every day is a new step to your goal. Yeah, you're getting closer. Motivated and focused. Don't stop, just go. Come to get inspiration from the Living La Vida Low Carb Show. Hey, the Living
2: Carb Show.com. One of my favorite quotes on science is this one from Peter Medawar which is, scientific theories begin as stories, and the purpose of the critical rectifying episode in scientific reasoning is precisely to find out whether or not these stories are stories about real life. And that quote goes along with another one from Claude Bernard. So I had been writing about science as a science journalist for, I don't know, 25 years, quarter of a century, before I read Claude Bernard's An Introduction to Experimental Medicine, which is a hoot. It's written in 1865. It's really the most fun you could have reading about science, at least the first third. Then he gets into stops complaining about the scientists of his era and actually starts talking about the science. Um, Claude Menard said to have our first idea of things, we must see those things, to have an idea about a natural phenomenon, we must first of all observe it. All human knowledge is limited to working back from observed effects to their cause. So this is basically, this is what science is. You see something in a laboratory, you see something in your experiment, you see something in nature. It tends to contradict your assumptions about how the universe works or should work, your belief system, and you want to explain it. So all of science is about Explaining what we see in effect, coming up with the cause, coming up with something that is necessary and sufficient to explain the phenomena that we're thinking about, and in this case, we have an observed effect we want to explain, okay, so it's not what diet works best? It's got nothing to do with that for the moment. The effect is this, worldwide epidemics of obesity and diabetes and related chronic diseases that follow a nutrition transition from traditional diets and lifestyles to Western diets. So all around the world, no matter what the population is, whether it's uh, you know, Inuits, whether it's Native American, whether it's South Pacific Islanders, whether it's Caucasian populations, European populations, African populations, everywhere in the world when a population population transitions from their natural diet to a western diet you see eventually these explosive epidemics of obesity and diabetes and we want to explain those epidemics what is it that causes them and the thesis the story i'm going to tell in this talk is caloric sweeteners specifically sucrose cane and beet sugar and high fructose corn syrup are the cause so that's all i'm talking about in this lecture is what is the cause of these epidemics And gonna start with the story about Elliot Jocelyn and observation, because one of the interesting things, we tend to talk about the obesity epidemic today and the diabetes epidemic that goes with it. that seems to, you know, we started uh, uh, impinging on our consciousness about 10 years ago. But you can actually go back in time to the very beginnings of this epidemic. And Elliot Jocelyn was there. So Elliot Jocelyn, you know, became <clears throat> in the twentieth century became the leading authority on diabetes in the United States, the god of diabetes. But when he was a young had just graduated from med school at Harvard in 1894 and as a young doctor in 1898 he went back with his colleague reginald fitz who was a harvard pathologist very famous at the time and they examined all the inpatient records at mass general hospital going back to when it opened in 1824 and they wanted to figure out they wanted to identify every single case of diabetes at mass general and try to understand how to treat this disease and how it progresses by looking at you know, what they had seen in the case records. So they identified 48,000 handwritten patient records over 74 years, and Jocelyn in this article talked about going through, patiently going through these handwritten records. And the question I asked physicians is how many cases of diabetes do you think they saw in 40,000 patients in 74 years in the major Massachusetts hospital? And the answer is 172 cases in 74 years. Um, you could see here are the numbers from the paper. So one of the things that uh, Jocelyn and Fitz noticed is that the percentage of patients was increasing from year to year. And the number of cases, total number of cases was increasing from year to year. So. Um, And Jocelyn was fascinated by this. You could see how that number keeps increasing and he was wondering what the cause was And I actually contacted the folks at Mass General. They have a a great archiving system. And they have all of these records are still archived at Mass General and you could contact them and ask them for. To go through and give you the numbers to see if Jocelyn was right, which he was. And they pointed out that from 1824 to 1855, in most of the years they had zero cases of diabetes in this major Boston City Hospital. Um, this is what Jocelyn Fitz said. They said, it appears from this table that within the past 13 years as many cases of diabetes were admitted to the hospital as in the previous 61, the percent in the past 13 years, <clears throat> excuse me, in proportion to the total number of hospital entries has increased fourfold. Um, that's the beginning of the epidemic in America right there. And you can see it really taking off post-Civil War. Um, this is the Philadelphia version. This is a, a Pennsylvania hospital in Philadelphia also has a wonderful archive system. And you can ask them for their... Just give me every case of diabetes dating back to their earliest cases, which are 1867. And you could see beginning around, uh, you know, that even in Philadelphia until about 1910, 1912, things are pretty calm. And then you see the epidemic exploding. And that's the beginning of the epidemic in Philadelphia. And what's interesting is Jocelyn didn't actually see this. as as an epidemic originally. In his 1898 paper, he thought what he was seeing was just diabetes. One possibility is just diabetics were much more likely to go to the hospital to get treated as the 19th century moved onward than they were in the early part of the century where they might have been treated at home or not known that he had the disease or just um, been smart enough to stay away from doctors at that period of time. (laughs) 1921, Jocelyn wrote this paper on the prevention of diabetes mellitus in the JAMA, and now he started using the term epidemic to describe what he was seeing. Now he decided it's not just this good thing that more patients are going to the hospital, and now clearly more people are getting diabetes. And he points out how the death rate has increased from year to year. Um, and here's again the same kind of increase you could see in various cities in America, published by, uh, Uh, Emerson and Laramore, two New York City public health officials in 1924. And the yellow numbers are the the diabetes mortality numbers from 1900. And they pointed out that in some American cities, diabetes mortality had increased 15-fold since the Civil War. And they were also calling it an epidemic. Um, As Dosselin said, there are entirely too many diabetic patients in the country. Statistics for the last 30 years show so great an increase in the number that unless this were in part explained by a better recognition of the disease, which is always possible, the outlook for the future would be startling. So now we could ask this question, what was the outlook for the future? What's happened since then, in the past 96 years or so, 95 years? And today we have 30 million Americans with diabetes. One in 11 Americans diagnosed with diabetes. So this massive increase. And worldwide you see the same numbers. In last October, Margaret Chan, Director General of the World Health Organization, gave a, uh, the keynote address to the annual meeting of the National Academies of Medicine, and said diabetes is one of the biggest global health crises of the 21st century, and the WHO estimates that the number of adults living with diabetes has quadrupled since 1980. The global prevalence of diabetes in adults has doubled. Um, a slow motion disaster, Margaret Chan called it, was really fascinating, Was she estimated the probability of keeping a bad situation from getting much worse, which is whether public health organizations like the World Health organization will have any effect whatsoever in curbing this epidemic. And her estimate was virtually zero. Which is fascinating to me alone because you have the director general of the largest health organization in the world saying we have this unprecedented epidemic, this slow motion disaster, and I guarantee you we are going to fail to stop it. And nobody cares. So this is the observation for which we need a cause. This is the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania hospital numbers. This is a similar curve in the Navajo. Like I told you, you see the same explosive rate of epidemic, you see curves like this occurring in every population in the world when they become westernized. Here's the same curve in Japan and following the Second World War. Here's the numbers in the United States. This is 700% increases, 600% increases since the early 1950s in the percentage of Americans with diabetes. Imagine if this had happened with any other disease, you know, Ebola, AIDS, lung cancer, pick your disease, and you had 700% increases, and the public health organizations were promising that they weren't going to get it under control. So similar patterns in the Inuit and First Nations people, Polynesians, Micronesians, Melanesians, Aboriginal populations in Australia, Maoris in New Zealand, throughout South America, Middle East, Asia, Africa, in short, every population in the world. So some obvious questions. What's the cause of this pandemic? That's what we're talking about. What's the environmental trigger, i.e. the agent? What, what's the, the, the feature of the environment that interacts with the human genotype, any human genotype, to create this explosion of the diabetic and obese phenotype? That's how. What aspect of diet or lifestyle is to blame? Why aren't we doing everything we possibly can to find out? Why aren't we questioning our assumptions? Why is no one being held accountable other than the victims in the food industry? Those are all, to me, the very key questions. Another way to phrase that last one is why are no heads rolling, okay? Wouldn't you fire the head of the World Health Organization if they told you that this was a slow motion disaster and promised you they were gonna fail to stop it? Okay. So why not? We think we know the answer, that's why not. There is a solution, okay? Type two diabetes, the simplest way to phrase it is caused by obesity or excess fat accumulation. Excess fat accumulation is caused by overconsumption and diabetes epidemics are certainly associated with obesity epidemics. okay? And they're associated with childhood obesity epidemics. So these two diseases go hand in hand and the assumption is also a complication. So on the simplest level, Simplest level, the public health authorities say diabetes is caused or exacerbated by obesity, obesity is caused by overconsumption, and then just to make sure that they never figure this out. Never. You have other possible triggers. Diabetes and obesity are multifactorial complex disorders. So there's a whole slew of reasons why these things occur. We can't blame it on one thing, that would be naive. That's what people like Taubes does. Okay, so Taubes happens to believe in Occam's razor. I can't help it, I was trained to be a physicist, so Occam's razor, you don't prove anything with Occam's razor, as uh, Jerome Grobman in The New Yorker was kind enough to point out. But you use Occam's razor, never multiply hypotheses beyond necessity, that's how one way to phrase it. Einstein put it this way, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. If you have the same crime being committed everywhere in the world, and the crime in this case is epidemics of obesity and diabetes, then assume it's the same thing. It's funny, I was having a conversation last week, two weeks ago, with a a Berkeley uh, psychologist who studies addiction, and she said, well, you know, it could also be, uh, uh, what is it called, Uh, endocrine disruptors from drinking plastic bottles. She said, there's a lot of things that could cause the epidemics, and I said, tell me another epidemic. She said, epidemics aren't caused by just one thing. And I said, okay, give me another epidemic that was caused by more than one thing. (laughs) I mean, lung cancer, cigarette smoking, you know. I mean, usually it's an infectious disease. AIDS is HIV virus. It's start with one thing. I'm not saying it necessarily is one thing. If it's not one thing, it should be as simple as possible. The simplest possible explanation is one thing. If you can't explain it with one thing, add another, and if that doesn't do it, you add a third, and you keep going until you get the simplest possible explanation that works. Okay, so the simplest possible hypothesis, in this case, a single agent, and the question then becomes, what about sugar? Is that a reasonable hypothesis? Can we refute the sugar hypothesis? That's how... Um, do we have to complicate the sugar hypothesis? So the idea by that is you add sugar to any population's diet, whether it's an Inuit diet and they're living on reindeer and seal meat, or it's a Native American diet of, you know, buffalo and uh, seasonal berries, or a Southeast Asian diet of that high glycemic index rice, or a Catawban diet with all their sweet potatoes or whatever, but you add sugar... And now you've got the makings of a diabetes epidemic. Is sugar necessary and sufficient to explain what's happening? So the interesting thing is when you go back in history, which I did for my research, it turns out that sugar was always the obvious suspect. Frederick Allen, who was a leading authority on diabetes before Elliot Insulin was discovered and Elliot Jocelyn was so became, you know, took over from Allen, Frederick Allen said, the consumption of sugar is undoubtedly increasing. It's generally recognized that diabetes is increasing and to a considerable extent. Its incidence is greatest among the race and the classes of society that consume the most sugar. This is true everywhere in the world, as Allen pointed out. Emerson and Lar- Larimore, when they published their paper, said it's apparent that rises and falls in the sugar consumption are followed with fair regularity by similar rise and falls in the death rate from diabetes. They were interested because sugar consumption plummeted during the First World War with rationing and disruption of the sugar industry worldwide, and diabetes cases came down. You can't establish causality from that because a lot of things changed during war, but it made sugar an obvious hypothesis, and sugar consumption had skyrocketed. So what's fascinating about the history is with the Industrial Revolution, suddenly sugar goes from being a very expensive item, it's kind of a luxury for the common people to a staple of the diet, and all the ways that we consume sugar today are basically created in the 19th century. So in the 1840s, you see the creation of the hard candy industry, and the chocolate industry, and the uh, ice cream industry, and in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, the soft drink industry is created with Dr. Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and then Pepsi. And so a food that used to be so expensive was pretty much consumed as a rarity and by the adults in the family by the late 19th century becomes the food of children and of women. The only thing that takes longer to show up, fruit juices don't show up until the 1930s and sugary cereals don't actually show up until the 1950s because the sugary cereal industry was founded by health nuts. In Minnesota, who were worried about dyspepsia, so they didn't think we should eat sugar, we should eat unrefined, a lot of you know, grains, and that would help with our, our digestion. But, you know, uh, capitalism being what it is, commercial pressures being what it is, by the late eight, 1940s, one uh, CW Post came out with uh, sugar cocoa crisps, and then everyone else said if we don't come out with our sugar coated cereals, uh, we're going to be run out of the business and it's fascinating reading the history because industry after industry had the nutritionists saying no No, no, and the marketing people saying yes, 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 and the nutritionists crumbled <clears throat> And it's like an arms race and by the 1960s entire food industry I mean entire Saturday morning cartoons are being created the cartoons. I grew up loving like Rocky and Bowwinkle were Rocky and Bowwinkle were created to sell sugar to me and my friends And the most brilliant minds in advertising on Madison Avenue and in Chicago were basically creating these shows to get us to eat sugary cereals. And it worked. So getting back to Jocelyn, why didn't sugar take off back in the 1920s when people like Emerson and Larimore and Allen were saying sugar's the obvious suspect? Around the world you had physicians suggesting as they watched diabetes epidemics take off in India, in England, in China, Maybe it's the sugar. And the reason it didn't take off, in England it was a Harold Hemsworth who would later become medical research, uh, head of the medical research council. In the US it was Elliot Jocelyn. So back then the problem is medical communities invested a lot of faith in authorities. Unlike scientific communities where you're taught to question everything. In medicine if an authority figure says it's true, it's true and Elliot Jocelyn was the god of diabetes in the US and he didn't like the hypothesis for three reasons, basically. On one hand, the Japanese ate a lot of carbohydrates and they didn't have diabetes. And Jocelyn, if he ever taught taught biochemistry, had forgot it, he did not understand that sugar is fundamentally different than rice. Okay, and we'll get to that later. But this alone was reason enough for him to reject it. So, and the funny thing is, if you look at the data, the diabetes mellitus in Japan. I showed you this chart. um, This is what Jocelyn didn't know. On the left is glucose, on the right is fructose, so rice breaks down to glucose. Sucrose is a glucose molecule bonded to a fructose molecule. The fructose makes a hell of a lot of difference. We'll talk to that. There's starches and grains. There's beet and cane sugar. The Japanese, back when they were consuming very, when they had exceedingly low levels of diabetes, were eating exceedingly little sugar. So it's not that that means sugar was the cause, but it means Jocelyn, if he had bothered to look, which he didn't, could have said, hey, maybe sugar's the cause, because sugar consumption in Japan tracks with diabetes, just like it does everywhere else in the world. Second reason, sugar was valuable for hypoglycemic episodes caused by insulin. So what's fascinating, Johnson was a diabetes expert. Until 1921, when insulin was discovered, diabetes is considered a carbohydrate intolerance disorder, right? It's carbohydrates that you can't metabolize, the carbohydrates that, 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 that make you hyperglycemic and just don't eat carbs. And then they discover insulin, and you could save lives, particularly type 1. So now diabetes becomes an insulin um, deficiency disorder, it fundamentally changes the way they think, and the problem is it's hard to dose insulin, particularly back in the 1920s when they were brand new of using it, and if you get somebody in a hypoglycemic episode, you could bail them out by giving them candy. Sugar's gotta be healthy. Hemsworth said the same thing in England. If you could make diabetics, if you could save them from dying of a, you know, hypoglycemia by giving them candy, sugar's gotta be good for you. I don't get them. Most diabetes was caused by getting fat. That was the explanation. So again, even back in the the 150 years ago, 200 years ago, they knew that there were two fundamental types of diabetes. There's a, a type that strikes in childhood that's acute and kills quickly, and there's a type that strikes in adulthood that associates with age and excess weight that's a more chronic form of the disease. And it's because it uh, uh, associates with obesity, Jocelyn's assumption is still today is that most diabetes was caused by getting fat, and that's caused by eating too much or exercising too little. So reason number three is Jocelyn said, diabetes is largely a penalty of obesity. The greater the obesity, the more likely nature is to enforce it. With an excess of fat, diabetes begins, and from an excess of fat, diabetics die, and the assumption is people get fat because not only do they eat too much, but they eat too much fat the obvious question, is that why we get fat? Conventional wisdom, in the book I get to refer to this, I have a chapter called The Gift That Keeps On Giving. Okay, I was, it's what made me really happy about writing my sugar book, is I got to ridicule this idea in public, and not just how it's used to, present the sort of wrong cause of obesity and the wrong treatment for obesity to patients and end up shaming them and making the obese and the diabetic feel like it's their fault, but also in how the industry got to use it. So by this idea, obesity is an energy balance disorder. It's caused by the overconsumption of calories, hence a calorie is a calorie, you've heard that. And the sugar industry, this is like the greatest thing that ever happened to them, in the 1950s, America starts going on a diet. Maybe they were dieting before then. We don't actually know, but with the invention of artificial sweeteners and then uh, low-calorie sugars, sweetened by artificial sweeteners, and cyclamates in the 1950s, suddenly people could see that there was a huge market beyond diabetics for low-calorie, low-sugar sweeteners. And people were saying, you know, doctors are recommending that their patients drink artificially sweetened beverages uh, to, maintain their weight or to lose weight, so the sugar industry decided they had to fight back because this is the first time somebody decided that maybe there's something unique about sugar and this calorie is a calorie idea. The idea that it's your overconsumption of all calories makes you fat was exactly what the sugar industry needed to protect itself. So all it had to do was run ads saying this is in effect the truth and it was what every nutritionist and obesity researcher for the most part believed. Sugar for energy, certainly, and remember, three teaspoons of domino sugar contain fewer calories than your egg. I try to imagine someone sitting at breakfast. Hmm, Three teaspoons of sugar, egg. Okay. So, still the sugar industry's take. This is still the gift that keeps on giving. Sugar is not the cause of obesity. As the sugar organization says on its website, consuming more food than needed to maintain energy balance causes overweight and obesity. If you eat more calories than you need from any source, you know, we know people who on kale and quinoa. <laughs> Okay, it's all about personal responsibility. If you want to lose weight, you'll need to cut calories or increase your activity level or both, and clearly, if you haven't lost weight, that's your problem because you don't have the willpower, and you know, this was my last book. Okay, in other words, there are no bad foods, only bad behaviors, the catch with the energy balance, calories are calorie sinking, and this is what's fascinating. I was kind of chagrined that I didn't realize this earlier when I was doing my research. It's the science circa 1870 through 1920. So basically, remember I said scientists, you know it starts with an observation, and that the way you, how you observe and what you can observe determines what you can explain. So what's fascinating is the field of modern nutrition begins in the late 1860s, that's when it dates to when German scientists, for the first time ever, built calorimeters, room-sized devices, that could measure the energy expenditure of humans or large animal subjects and so from the 1870s to 1920 the only thing they could do in nutrition and if I You go find an old history of nutrition textbook and every chapter is calorimetry, measuring energy in or energy out, or studying vitamins and mineral deficiencies because you could feed animals uh, diets deficient varied vitamins and minerals and see what happened. Then by the 1920s, the new nutrition comes up, which is a realization that human human diseases like beriberi and scurvy and pellagra are diseases of vitamin deficiencies and can be cured by replacing those vitamins. So from 1870 to 1920, all of nutrition science is energy in, energy out, calories, measuring the calories in foods, measuring the calories expended by army soldiers and babies and sick people. And by the 1910, 1920, the theory of obesity is about calories, calories in, calories out. That's all they can measure. End of story. What's interesting, sugar gets labeled empty calories. So that's the worst that we could say about sugar is it's empty calories, it's empty of vitamins and minerals, and it's got calories. It's science circa 19, 1870 and 1920, and the interesting thing, the problem is, is that science continued. From the, Think how well your iPhones would work if physics or any other field had stopped in 1920. I mean, it's crazy, and yet in medicine, that's what we did. We locked in a theory of obesity and a theory of malnutrition, a theories of how foods could affect based on what we could measure in 1920. So here's another way to think about it. All of physiology and medicine post-1920. So consuming sugar has unique hormonal metabolic effects that happen to favor the fat accumulation and insulin dysregulation. This stuff starts getting worked out Well, beginning, the, the hormones are discovered in the 1920s and then measuring the hormones in the bloodstream is something we can't do to the 1960s. So it's not until the 1960s when we could actually measure how various hormones affect blood levels, how various foods affect blood levels of hormones instead of just how many calories or the vitamins and minerals they contain. So this is a slide I borrowed basically from Rob Lustig. The way he phrased it brilliantly was, you know, foods can be isocaloric and have entirely different metabolic effects. And what's interesting is in other areas of medicine, this is clear as day, the reason we're fighting the saturated fat battle is because people think saturated fat, regardless of the calories, has different effects on the accumulation of atherosclerotic plaques and polyunsaturated fat. So there are even isocaloric, 100 calories of each, who get different effects on the arteries, but in weight, we assume it's gotta just be the calories. So 100 calories of sugar, 50-50 fructose and glucose is metabolized differently from 100 calories of starch, which is metabolized differently from 100 calories of protein or 100 calories of fat. The hormonal responses are entirely different. The organs they're metabolized in are entirely different. Why would we ever expect them to have the same effect? And yet we created a theory, the gift that keeps on going, the calorie is a calorie idea, that says none of this matters. And if it didn't matter, that would be a remarkable observation. But it does. So by the 1960s, once we can measure hormone levels in the bloodstream correctly, researchers start studying what actually regulates the accumulation of fat and fat cells and the metabolism, uh, 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 the oxidation of fatty acids in lean tissue and organs, and it turns out to be insulin as a principal regulator of fat metabolism. This is Yalo and Burson. They created the technology to measure the hormones. By 1965, most of this had been worked out. This is a slide from 2010 to show that it hasn't gone away and the suppression of fat mobilization was insulin, insulin, insulin. Release of fatty acids from fat cells requires only the negative stimulus of insulin deficiency. So we had an entirely different hypothesis then. In the 1960s, you see this battle emerge between two different hypotheses, two different paradigms, is the nutrition and cardiology community in the U.S. starts to focus on dietary fat as a cause of heart disease. Dietary fat raises cholesterol, which causes atherosclerotic plaques and heart disease. the UK primarily, people. although also here in the US, people started looking at the effect of sugar. And if it's sugar, it's going through a different pathway, it's a different paradigm. Now we're talking about metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. So John Yudkin made the same uh, Observation in 1963 that, that people like Emerson and Larimore and, and, and Allen had made 50 years earlier. If we're looking for a dietary causes, some of the ills of civilization, look at the most significant changes in man's diet. And the most significant change was clearly sugar. So Yudkin was the first one to really start looking at this effect of sugar, and again, looking at fat intake, not just cholesterol and coronary artery disease, but diabetes and obesity, and you could think of it as looking at asking two different questions. While the American researchers and some of the Europeans were focused on asking this question, why do we see such high rates of heart disease in the US and some European countries, Yudkin and Peter Cleaves and others were saying, why are we seeing these epidemics of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease worldwide? Okay, what you see tells you what answer you're gonna get. What are you trying to explain? So Yudkin also pointed out that heart disease isn't just the only the, the, The dietary fat cholesterol theory was acting or assuming that the primary, if not the only dysregulation going on was with cholesterol in the blood when we go on to get heart disease. And Yudkin was pointing out that there's a whole slew, a whole cluster of metabolic abnormalities that associate with heart disease. And elevated cholesterol may or may not be just one of them, but that sugar allows... In laboratory animals, and human subjects, you can begin to create every single one of the cluster of metabolic abnormality. So he was starting to talk about metabolic syndrome a quarter of a century before Ancel Keys, uh, excuse me, before Gerald Reaven at Stanford actually identified, uh, started talking about syndrome X and uh, relationship to heart disease. And what happened to this argument? Well, Ancel Keys didn't like it. Remember, medicine is dominated by authority figures. So Keyes wrote this article, Sucrose in the Diet and Coronary Heart Disease. It started out as a letter that he circulated to his friends, then they decided to publish it in Atherosclerosis, who ridiculed Yudkin. Um, The widely publicized theory that sucrose in the diet is a major factor in the development of coronary heart disease has been examined. The theory is not supported by acceptable clinical epidemiologic theoretical or experimental evidence. It has been claimed that the theory is supported by international statistics, by the time trend of the incidence rate, not one of these claims is justified. Okay, I feel Keys going after Yudkin in 1973 is like you could find sort of the same tone and the same rigor when people like Stephen A go after me in 2017. Um, it's a- classic argument, okay, what else happened to this argument? I mean, Keyes ridiculed Yudkin and he successfully ridiculed Yudkin by 1972, 1973 to say that there was something negative about sugar was to be accused of being just like Yudkin, as though that was Yudkin had become synonymous with quacks, but Keyes was helped along immensely by the sugar industry, which also wasn't fond of the argument. And the sugar industry is the president of the Sugar Association, Inc., which is sugar industry lobbying, group, put it in October 1976, and confronting our critics we try never to lose sight of the fact that no concerned scientific evidence links sugar to the death-dealing diseases. This crucial point is the lifeblood of the association. So this is fundamentally different than the way the tobacco industry approached it, okay? Because the evidence against the tobacco industry by the 1960s was already damning against tobacco as a cause of lung cancer. In sugar, the evidence was ambiguous. You really couldn't tell. There wasn't, it's a much harder thing to study the effect of sugar on heart disease, diabetes and obesity. If for no other reason than you don't have, in smoking, you have non-smokers and smokers. And you could assume that they're kind of similar, but in the sugar industry in sugar, you had people who consumed a lot of sugar, and you could compare them to people who consumed, you know, a little less and you were looking at very common diseases, so the best you could say is the evidence was ambiguous, and you were looking at disease states that took decades to manifest themselves, and the best you could do is test them in human subjects for a month or two. And So it was true, and the sugar industry set out to make sure that the evidence never became conclusive. That was basically the role. So not to argue that the evidence wasn't conclusive, because the evidence was not conclusive, but their lifeblood was to make sure it never got confirmed. So by the mid-1970s, the sugar industry hires Fred Stare at Harvard, who's the head of the Harvard Nutrition Department, who had been taking funding from them for good and then bad reasons since the early 1940s with the very founding of the Harvard Nutrition Department. And they hire Fred Stare to put together a white panel, uh, 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 paper called Sugar in the Diet of Man, and he hires leading authorities in the field to write chapters, and these leading authorities are all people who think that dietary fat is a problem. And they consider this a dichotomy, so if dietary fat is a cause of heart disease, sugar can't be the cause of heart disease. And if heart disease associates with obesity, then dietary fat better cause obesity too, and sugar can't be the cause of that. Nobody was talking about diabetes because that was too complicated, and diabetes rates were still pretty low.
0: Hey guys, you've been hearing me talk about this company called Real Good Foods and the pizzas and enchiladas that they make available at realgoodfoods.com. Well, guess what? They finally got into Walmart. So you can go to Walmart right now and get their two-time servings large pizzas all across Walmart stores in America. And each of these pizzas has only four grams of carbs per serving. They also have an exclusive flavor only at Walmart, bacon and cheese. So check out the store locator at realgoodfoods.com to find a store near you and get your Real Good Foods pizzas from Walmart today. Go support this ketogenic company, Real Good Foods.
2: So in 1974, these physicians, these researchers, all dedicated anti-fat people, put out sugar in the diet of man, a <clears throat> group of papers. The sugar industry distributes 25,000 copies of this to every newspaper magazine in the country, every expert, they hand it out at conferences. They put out ads like this, how do we know sugar is safe? Well, after this sugar in the diet of man comes out, the FDA decides to address this issue of whether sugar should be generally recognized as safe, in order for to be used as a food additive. It has to get grass status, generally recognized as safe. The Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology has a, uh, a team of researchers addressing hundreds of possible substances, food additives, and one of them is sugar and the sugar industry gives them sugar in the diet of man, and they help these people put together their report from the, that's gonna be published under the auspices of the FDA, and this report concludes that sugar at current levels of consumption is generally recognized as safe. Most people think it's safe, which is true. But the sugar industry takes that sort of acquittal, as, and we don't have enough evidence to convict sugar, kind of like we didn't have enough evidence to convict O.J. Simpson, and then they, change the logic to say this proves that sugar is safe, that O.J. Simpson did not murder his wife. Um, the FDA revisits this 10 years later. Group of FDA um, uh, bureaucrats led by Walter Glinsman, who later come, goes on to become a consultant for the uh, corn refiners industry. Coincidentally, and they conclude very much the same thing 10 years later, so no conclusive evidence on sugars demonstrates a hazard to the general public when sugars are consumed at the levels that are now current. So what's interesting is Glensman and his colleagues took it upon themselves to calculate what the current levels were. They didn't decide they weren't gonna believe the USDA numbers, they weren't gonna believe any of the survey numbers. They were gonna figure it out for themselves. And this was the crucial line in the article because they also said if the amount of sugar consumed went up, they didn't know if it would still be considered safe. So they estimated that the uh, average American consumption was 40 pounds per person per year, which was almost half of what the USDA estimating for 1968, 1986, which was 75 pounds per person per year out of 124 pounds that the food industry was making available. And (laughs) significantly less than the USDA estimate for 2016. And I think if everyone in the country was consuming, four, really consuming 40 pounds of sugar per person per year, which is roughly what the, uh, like the American Heart Association is pushing, today most people would be generally happy and most people would assume we don't, wouldn't have a diabetes epidemic. But we're clearly consuming at least twice that much. The FDA, Statement that sugars were generally recognized as safe, then carried on to these uh, other sort of um, uh, iconic reports on diet and health that were published by the Surgeon General's Office in 1988 and then the National Academy of Sciences in 1989. These were all written by the same people, by the way. They're just different reports under different, you know, the same sort of two dozen nutritionists, cardiologists, quote, experts wrote all these reports. The main conclusions in the Surgeon General's version, the overconsumption of certain dietary components is now a major concern for Americans. While many food factors are involved, chief among them is the disproportionate consumption of foods high in fats often at the expense of foods high in complex carbohydrates and fiber. So there's no mention of sugar in any of this, because sugar is generally recognized as safe. These reports focus on fat. I remember when they came out, they were front page New York Times News. Each time a new report came out, it seemed like one expert after the next was concluding that fat was indeed killing us, and this launched us on this low-fat diet mania that we've been trying to combat. So for the last 10 years. And then there are unintended consequences to this. When the uh, first report came out that McGovern's uh, Dietary Goals for Americans in 1977, Mark Hegsted, it was at Harvard, it was a fervent anti-fact. I said, we can't imagine anything bad that could come from telling people to eat less fat. But then you end up with things like this. play, Greek yogurt, so these are health foods. Okay, they're only 100 calories each, which means portion control, right? They're low in fat. Okay, zero grams of saturated fat. What could be bad with that? Sugar isn't that bad, it's only seven grams and 12 grams until you actually remember that there's only 100 calories in it, so that 12 gram one is 48% sugar and it's a heart-healthy diet food. Okay, so what else changed since the late 1980s? Americans started drinking Starbucks coffee. Metabolic syndrome, okay? Remember, Yudkin basically identified this in the 1960s, but Yudkin had been ridiculed, turned into a quack by the 1980s, and meanwhile, Gerald Reeven and his colleagues at Stanford and a few other researchers around the country had been diligently researching the effects of elevated insulin, hyperinsulinemia, and insulin resistance. Beginning in the 1960s, you could actually measure it with the very first papers that Yellow and Burson published <coughs> after... <coughs> excuse me, after uh, developing the radio immunoassay, they were pointing out that obese individuals tended to be insulin resistant, and that type two diabetes was not a disorder of insulin deficiency, it was a disorder of uh, excess insulin, insulin resistance, it went along with hyperglycemia. And Riven took this work and from 19, beginning in late 1988, he starts talking about what he called Syndrome X, which is this combination of medical disorders that, that cluster together with obesity and diabetes and heart disease and gal and hypertension. Um, You end up with this concept called metabolic syndrome. We don't call it insulin resistance syndrome because the CDC and the NIH decided it was too hard for physicians to actually measure insulin resistance. In the doctor's office, and since these terms are named for physicians, not for scientific reasons, you end up with a definition of metabolic syndrome that doesn't require actually ever measuring insulin, but it is insulin resistance syndrome, and it affects one in five people. The prevalence increases with age, it's estimated to be twenty. 25 of the population in the U.S. You could see how, by the time you're my age in your 60s, your percentage of chance of being having metabolic syndrome, being overweight, obese, pre-diabetic, or diabetic, or obese, is almost 50%. These are the people you physicians are seeing in your offices every day. That's overwhelming your office, and the question then becomes, what causes metabolic syndrome? What causes insulin resistance? Because all these diseases, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, all diseases of insulin resistance are called hypertensive disorders in the medical textbooks. And the conventional wisdom is sedentary behavior, maybe eating too much, maybe hypertension's caused by eating too much salt, heart disease by eating too much fat. The biochemical wisdom, sugar. Particularly the combination of fructose and glucose. Okay, this is how Luke Tappy and Kim Manley put it in a, a review on the metabolic effects of fructose back in 2010. High fructose intake has indeed been shown to cause dyslipidemia and to pair hepatic insulin sensitivity although there's compelling evidence that very high fructose intake can have deleterious metabolic effects. The role of fructose in the development of the current epidemic of metabolic disorders remains controversial so clearly we can cause metabolic syndrome in human and animals by feeding them sugar, but is that why they become obese and diabetic? Well, here's the pathways, and there's a lot of them. So fructose can cause lipogenesis and dyslipidemia and body, excess body fat and reactive oxidant species and hyperuricemia and impaired bicep A lot of different ways cooked together that you can get insulin resistance from consuming fructose, and particularly consuming fructose along with the glucose and sugar, because one of them raises insulin levels, the other one appears to possibly cause insulin resistance in the liver, leading to systemic insulin resistance, leading to diabetes and obesity, if you think it should be a suspect. Here's how you take in sugar and end up with heart disease, vascular disease, high blood pressure, all the different mechanisms. Um, the only thing I disagree with is they assume that fructose makes people eat more. And I would say that you, once you develop insulin resistance or even you know, insulin dysregulation, the sugar consumption could cause obesity directly. The excess calorie intake is, is the 100-year-old thinking. So here are the caveats. This is why it's controversial. Studies in sugar and animals and animals are not humans. Okay, again, you're looking at, this is a fundamental problem with nutrition science. We're trying to understand the dietary causes of diseases that take decades to manifest themselves. And you can't do studies in decades in humans. You can do studies for like most of the life of a rat or a mouse, but rats and mice aren't humans. Primates are not humans. And studies in humans have historically tended to be a fructose alone, and fructose alone is not sugar. So what we're looking at is not the effect of fructose per se, but we want to know the effect, what happens when we consume fructose with glucose, and possibly even worse, when we consume them as liquids and accelerate the delivery of them to the the pancreas and the kidney. And then studies tend to last weeks to a few months, which is not long enough to look for chronic effects. So it's legitimately, you know, this is a hypothesis. What I just told you was a story that I think is a consistent story, and it may be a likely story, but clearly there are people in the sugar industry who disagree why it's remained controversial. Exactly zero long-term studies of the kind the NIH spent over a billion dollars on testing and failing to confirm the dietary fat hypothesis have ever been done to test and confirm the dietary sugar hypothesis. So beginning in the 1960s, when we started suggesting that fat, when nutritionists like Ancel Keys were suggesting fat caused heart disease... People said, you have to test this in a clinical trial, so let's feed people fat, and we can do it in the hospitals, and we can do it in mental patient homes, and we can try and do it in free-living populations. And they spent at least a billion dollars trying to test that hypothesis. And as Nina Teichels has so beautifully shown, those hypotheses fail time and time again, I failed the test. We didn't do any of them with sugar. And I would argue you could never do one with sugar, in large part because even the sugar industry, so let's say the idea is you're going to take 100,000 people and randomize 50% of them to eat less sugar and the other 50% are gonna continue eating sugar ad libitum. And even the sugar industry would say, well wait, we don't wanna spend a billion dollars on that. Clearly the sugar abstainers are gonna be healthier. Like who would ever think that study was worth doing because it would so clearly assume that people who didn't eat sugar would be healthier. Okay, so meaningful studies are not being done. They probably never will. You'd also, one of the reasons that people not eating sugar would be healthier is because they'd consume less calories. And that would be one of the knee-jerk responses. Well, of course I'll be healthier without drinking all those sugary beverages and without eating all those sugary snacks. I have a lot less to eat. They'll consume less calories. They'll weigh less. A calorie is a calorie, but they're gonna weigh less, and that's why they're gonna be healthier. So to really do this, you have to then disassociate the effect of the sugar. You have to prove that isocaloric does not mean isometabolic. And those experiments which Nusi tried and failed to fund are also very difficult to do and very expensive. So the conclusion for the moment, sugar may well be the fundamental cause of obesity, diabetes, and heart disease via its effect on insulin resistance. And saying, as the Institute of Medicine recently did, that there's a lack of scientific agreement or that it is controversial should not be reassuring. Sugar is still the prime suspect for the fundamental cause of diabetes, the necessary and sufficient condition in a diet to cause diabetes and obesity epidemics. So one last issue. My wife calls this the um, Grinch Who Stole Christmas issue. The sugar and cancer issue. I mean, you could do a lot. When I first talked about sugar and cancer in the New York Times, Magazine back in 2011, I got an email from somebody who's probably in this room saying, you know Why didn't you talk about sugar and premature aging and I said well I thought once I got cancer and I could scare people out of eating sugar and she said no No, if you want to scare women out of eating sugar tell (laughs) me So if you're here, I'm still talking about cancer, but I respect the premature aging argument it can be made so Obesity is associated with a whole host of chronic disease, meaning the heavier you are, the fatter you are, the more likely you are to get these chronic diseases, and they happen to include cancer and neurodegeneration as an Alzheimer's disease. Um so is it possible? First of all, what's Driving that cancer obesity connection, which is a cancer diabetes connection as well, which happens to be a cancer metabolic syndrome connection. So, people with metabolic syndrome are not obese or diabetic yet, also at increased risk of cancer. And the argument is probably it's mediated, and there's some very good evidence to this effect that says yes, it's mediated through the insulin signaling pathway and the insulin like growth factor IG1 pathway. This is how this. Uh, 2007 uh, World Cancer Institute research report put it. Insulin resistance is increased in particular by abdominal fatness and the pancreas compensates by increasing insulin production. The hyperinsulinemia increases the risk of cancers of the colon, endometrium, possibly of the pancreas and kidney. Here's how it looks when you chart it out. It was done in the nation's reviews cancer. So insulin resistance raises insulin which makes insulin-like growth factor binding protein decrease, which makes insulin-like growth factor by more bioavailable, which triggers insulin receptors and IGF receptors on the cancer cell walls, which generates tumor development, increases tumor development. And then the question is, whatever causes insulin resistance will at least increase the risk of cancer. So what's the question mark? And the conventional wisdom is, actually in this case, it's now sedentary behavior. I refuse to believe that you guys are engaging in a carcinogenic activity, listening to me talk, so I'm gonna say maybe it's sugar. Thank you. So the question is, how much does philosophy, for example, the philosophy of science, like, I, I personally believe that there is objective reality, and if you work hard enough at it, you can find it, even though it's constantly transforming and so on. So how much does these sort of these bigger philosophic questions come up in your mind when you're trying to come up with you know, the, the, this history of science? Um, okay, so, Fascinating. First, I'm actually, I'm listening to lectures on Audible, now on the science war. So people have been arguing for 400 years or actually back to Plato, whether there is such a thing as objective reality and whether or not we just, you know, is, is there an objective reality? Is it only our experience of objective reality and does science describe one or the other? I think all my books, and I've probably, have been about good science and bad science. That's what interests me, it's like how easy it is. Physicists have a term called pathological science, which is a science of things that aren't so. And that's not malconduct, it's not fraud where you make things up, it's just you forget that the fundamental rule of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And so you start fooling yourself, and everything I've done has been investigating this process. And again, my critics would say, well, Taubes is a hypocrite, clearly he's fooling himself and doesn't realize it. But I think that people forget, I, don't, I think there's a half century of nutrition, maybe 70 years, maybe going back to World War II, that the fundamental pursuit of what science is, of, of seeing observations, of explaining observations. So one of the conflicts we're dealing with today is, I think, a pretty simple one. So the reason we're in this room is that we find these diets to have remarkable clinical efficacy. right? Whether we're individuals who have tried them and managed to reverse years of uh, obesity or overweight or diet diabetes or hypertension or psoriasis or whatever it happens to be, or whether we're physicians who are telling our patients to do, and for the first time ever you're able to get, actually get patients to lose weight and get healthy. And that's the observation we're trying to explain, and then public health guidelines and recommendations are driven by epidemiology for the most part, and people who never treat patients in their life who don't observe what we've observed. and are trying to explain something different, which is why there's associations between you know eating mostly plants and eating vegetable oils and health and, in affluent populations versus poor populations. so we're looking at fundamentally different observations, and they have their explanation for their observation, and if they read pop or more, they might be more interested in testing it. And we have our observations, and the way you test your observations, if you're a doctor, you say is it. Can I replicate it? Like one of my patients, Eric Westman, first time he did this, told me, look, I had a patient do Atkins against my will. He lost 30, 40 pounds. I forget the number was, he came back. I did a lipid profile, his cholesterol profile improved. That's the observation I want to explain. And I want to find out if I can replicate it. So you think in terms of uh, understanding what science is is vitally important, so I often have arguments with epidemiologists saying you've got to get out there and talk to the doctors, because they're giving advice fundamentally different to yours. The reason we bridle at the public health advice to, for instance, drink vegetable oils instead of eating animal fats is because we think eating animal fats has helped make us healthier. Now, we could be deluded. We might be fooling ourselves, but we don't think the observational studies say anything about that. We think they're addressing different questions. So at the fundamental level, it's always about understanding what science is, what the value of observations is, how you generate hypotheses, what you're trying to explain, what you see that you're trying to explain, and we're trying to explain something different than they are. The question is, are we right or are they right? And how do you rationalize that? So I think about that stuff all the time. Um, and it's what fascinates me. Uh, and that and a nickel, or $3, will get me another Starbucks iced coffee.
3: Considering your whole life has been dedicated to getting to this point, which is the present, um, and looking into the future, would you agree that pediatricians may be the biggest targeted audience for education, understanding that Most people here are probably over the age of 40. I'm not judging by any means, but I'm very much interested in preventive care and how we do at at our age and up have a lot of emotional stressors, government restrictions, education restrictions in terms of getting degrees that cost a lot of money that force us to choose convenience sometimes. For not choosing the healthiest diet, starting with the clean, clean slate of a child might be a very good place to start in terms of teaching them new principles. Would you agree that that's something you've maybe thought about? I mean, I know you've thought about it, yeah, but because well, yeah. um, so. I, I like your working backwards. I don't mean to make too many statements, but you've worked a long time to gather data to find that simple cause. Now, how, how do you think you're going to work in the future to work backwards to make better effects?
2: Okay, so are you a pediatrician? No, I'm a
3: a pediatric physical therapist. I'm actually a physical therapist of all all kinds.
2: (laughs) Okay, so the complicated question. Who's the target? When we, NUSI, my nutrition science initiative was slightly more functional than it's been for the past year and a half, we used to have these discussions about what constitutes success. What constitutes success to me, and to me success was If you have an obese child, or an overweight child, or a child who's destined to become obese, I want to make sure that we know the cause, beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know what's triggering it, we know what the treatment is, and everybody knows what that to do with it. Just like they know how to prevent lung cancer, for the most part, not that we succeed, but we know how to prevent it, we know what you have to do, we know how to prevent HIV, there's no denying anymore that there are ways to prevent it. So how do you prevent and reverse obesity? Everyone knows it. So the teacher and the parents know it, the teachers know it, the child knows it, the school knows it, the pediatrician knows it, the dietitian they hire knows it, the insurance rep knows it, everyone knows it. So the advice they're getting and everything is designed, and then you know if the food system also knows it, so it's easy to buy the necessary foods, so the food, you know, the, the, the food environment isn't pushing this crap on them all the time the way we designed it to do. So that to me is success, and there's a lot of parts of that. So the pediatricians knowing it, targeting the pediatricians at this point would be great, but the parents have to buy in. And the medical organizations have to buy in so the pediatricians don't get different, and pretty much everyone has to buy in, because I think with kids it's just going, always gonna be a lot harder because there's always going to be other forces in their lives as well, and you know, I've been having an argument with my eight-year-old about no, you do not need to replenish electrolytes in Gatorade after basketball practice. You're eight years old. (laughs) You're not even sweating yet. (laughs) And I am losing that battle, and I'm just thinking, okay, basketball camp will end with the summer, and I'll pick it up again in the fall. So all those things have to change. And everything we're doing is working towards it. I mean, again, it's kind of remarkable how there's always something new. It's like whack-a-mole, you know. But the pediatricians are part of it, Mm -hmm. but they won't be enough without the parents, and the parents won't be enough without the friends and the school and the, you know. I mean, we all do our best, and every step along the way is better, makes the situation better, but it's all gotta change. Um, So. Appreciate it, thanks. Great, great work. Um, so, I have a question about the kind of concomitant increase in vegetable seed vegetable oils that have kind of paralleled uh, sugar intake, and what your opinion is of any interaction between sugar and v- increase in vegetable oils being skyrocketing as well, a thousand times or whatever, and and whether there's any evidence that there's somehow a Poisonous interaction going on with donuts and cupcakes and and all that with with sugar and vegetable oil combination So sugar and vegetable oils. It could be anything is possible. I find the vegetable oil You know when I want to explain this epidemic I could find epidemic I could find examples of this epidemic where there are no vegetable oils really present in the diet, but what's new is sugar and sugary beverages. So I think sugar and sugary beverages are necessary and sufficient. And then the question is, does the vegetable oil make it worse? And it's quite possible, but I think the world is full of obese and diabetic kids whose parents know enough not to buy a lot of processed foods with soy and canola oil. What's it ironic, I mean, it's, I'm working on a paper for the British Medical Journal that I'm co-authoring on dietary fats with one of the leading epidemiologists in the world who wants to explain the decrease in heart disease mortality by the increase in vegetable oil consumption. This is a problem with association, so one of the things I'm gonna do is say, well, you can't take credit for the decrease in heart disease mortality. No you can't find a decrease in heart disease incidence if you're not gonna be willing to take credit for the increase, say, in diabetes that also happened. And that's the problem with association studies. So it's just it's a very messier science, and what I think is if, you, if I could find a population that didn't eat sugar and white flour, then I could give them vegetable oils and see what it does to them. And it could indeed be true that the combination of the two is particularly bad. But when it comes to the trigger of the epidemic, like I said, I could find cases where vegetable oils weren't there and sugar was. Uh, it's harder, I have yet to find the opposite scenario. Great. Great, thank you. Thank you.
4: Hi,
3: so other than good science, what do you believe is the greatest barrier we're facing in changing the,
2: the world? Well, bad science is the barrier. Um, <laughs> good science is the solution. Uh, f- I think it's the cognitive dissonance, the fact that people, well, you know. Once
3: we have that good science, what do we do?
2: It's like, you just keep it a uh, day at a time. I mean, my role model is, you know, Don Quixote, just <laughs> go after the windmill. It's gonna, they're not going to change much, but that's what you keep doing. I mean, there's everywhere you go, it's like, if we can convince people that saturated fat isn't Killing them and have convinced their medical research organizations to lift the caps on that, which is exceedingly difficult to do, then you're still left with now their environmental issues and the rise of the vegan vegetarian movement. And I respect their ethical and moral arguments, but I think they're, you know, the bad science is exaggerated there. So um, it's sort of, you know, it's just a constant struggle on every step along the way. And then to remind yourself that. 15 years ago, when I first started this, there were maybe five physicians in America who were giving, uh, who were prescribing low-carb diets, like Eric Westman and four other people. And even Eric was nervous about it, and now there's probably thousands, and it's a tiny relative increase, like maybe from 0 00001% to 1% of all physicians, but it's a huge absolute increase. And it's, you know, this, last year this meeting was 300 people, this year it's 600 people. So, you know, it's sort of a constant reminder to see that we are slowly winning, even though sometimes it feels like one step forward, two steps back.
3: Okay. Thanks.
0: Hi, Gary. I'm I'm really glad that the the guy in front of that lady talked about um, the increase in vegetable oil consumption. This is actually something that's been on my mind for years. Um, I think it's very likely that the apparent increase in vegetable oil consumption based on food availability data is an inaccuracy based on a failure to recognize how much of that food is actually lost out of the market due to not being consumed. Um, I was wondering if you have looked into doing any research on that or if you have any more information
1: on it.
2: Um, And that's an easy answer. I have not. I've done some, you know, basic reading so I could talk about vegetable oils without being an idiot. Okay, that's up to you guys to decide. Um, But, no, I have. Again, to me, there's a bigger issue, and, um, you know, I've... What happens in this business, you go from doing your research to then fighting the battle on different fronts and the ability to continue doing research, which may be where your passion is, so it falls aside. So even if I wanted to do it, it would be six months of my life before I was comfortable with my understanding of the science and I don't have six months to give, so. Thank you. Maybe my, the lack of understanding of your language, maybe you have already said this, but. I want to make sure, to make sure if now medicine is run by guidelines issued from consensus out of evidence-based medicine, and that is running the healthcare of the humanity all over
0: the world. What do you think of it?
2: With the evidence-based medicine yes, ideas? Yes. I mean, I wrote some of the very first articles in the U.S. on the evidence-based medicine movement. I remember thinking it was very amusing that in medicine you even had a movement towards evidence-based medicine, which said, what were you guys doing prior to this? But what I didn't realize is, and again, the problem is it's this principle of science. must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And it's very easy for people to get fooled by clinical experience. So I'm gonna give a a little advertisement. By the way, I'm working on another book which is gonna be more of a how-to book. And to do this book, I'm talking to physicians and dietitians who now um, prescribe low-carb diets who have shifted their thinking. And I ask anyone in the audience who hasn't heard that I'm doing this, I would like to hear from you through my website and set up an interview so I could talk to you about what you're seeing in your clinic, in your experience, what you've learned from your patients, you know, what, how to get this across to them, uh, a lot of the subjects that were covered in the last lecture. But, um, so please reach out to me if you haven't already. Um, the problem is, you see the numerators, you see the successes, you might not see the denominators. So there's a lot of ways a clinical experience can fool you. And even this project I just described, if I'm not talking to physicians who are suddenly head over heels in love with vegan and vegetarian diets or Mediterranean diets, I'm not getting to see what they're seeing. And maybe they're seeing better results than what you guys are seeing. And that's why God created randomized control trials and evidence-based medicine. The problem is then you get in a situation where the randomized control trials fail you. And they seem to fail us in nutrition. That's originally why the Nutrition Science Initiative was created to naively come up with ways to do those trials better. Um, So far we've simply failed. So it's a very tricky situation. There's an article in the New England Journal of Medicine yesterday by Tom Frieden, the former head of the CDC, arguing basically for the use of observational studies, epidemiologic surveys over clinical trials, because clinical trials can screw up and get the wrong answer. And what I would say to Frieden is the fact that clinical trials get the wrong answer doesn't mean that observational studies can be trusted. So you've got two tools that are both flawed. Maybe you should have a little humility in giving advice rather than just saying, let me pick the one that's easier that I like the answer of better. So there's all these issues that are, come against sort of the fundamental limits of science and medicine and establishing what's a healthy diet. And then there's what you guys see in your clinics every day, which may be biased, but you put people on these diets, and if they adhere, you seem to make them healthier. You don't know if you would've made them healthier with a vegetarian diet, unless they were vegetarians. (laughs) So there's, again, it's just, it's exceedingly complicated. I wish, I don't think the medical community thinks about it as deeply as they should, and I don't know what the solution is. When I had a conversation recently with a leading member of this sort of vegan fringe, he said, we know what a healthy diet is, and if you think you're ever gonna do a randomized controlled trial that can convince us otherwise, you're crazy. Never done, too expensive. And I said, we've been working on a nuclear fusion program around the world that costs, I think we've spent $50 billion so far, around the world on trying to get nuclear fusion, not fission, because we're gonna need fusion energy if we could create it, that's how the sun works. And we expect to have spend another 50 billion or so before we end up with um, a working fusion reaction and reactor and find out whether it's cost effective. At CERN, outside the big physics lab outside Geneva, they spend $10 billion building a particle accelerator to answer basically a single question. And that accelerator costs about a billion dollars a year I don't know if you remember, destroyer was hit off the coast of Japan about a month ago, and that destroyer had suffered damage. That destroyer cost one billion dollars and was one of 62 ships in its class. So it's a matter of how we want to spend the money. If we decide it's a problem, we clearly have the, you know, how do you, what, is, what does it mean to your society? Do you want to spend, Do the, go through the effort? For a billion dollars, you can answer this question. But you have to decide it's an important question first, and we haven't even gotten there yet with our public health officials who say, it's a slow motion disaster, we're gonna fail, and uh, you know, we're gonna move on. So it can be done, but we're not doing it. Yeah, I was gonna ask you, is the, um, are you still associated with Peter Atia, and is, is that the organization you just referred to? Yeah, a the Nutrition ago? Science Initiative. So I think I gave an update last year. We're We're not associated with Peter. Peter and I talk. Peter's now running a a medical uh, service in uh, New York and doing very well. Um, We're like an old divorce couple. You know, we talk because we still have kids, but we don't want to hear about, you know, Um, And uh, NUSI itself is, we're trying to raise money for studies. We're still, it's a virtual organization. We're all working for free. If anyone wants a job, I can hire you and pay you exactly what I'm getting paid. (laughs) Pick your title. But we're getting things done. I mean, we recently raised $13 million for a study that our name isn't gonna be attached to, and we're technically not gonna have anything done, but it'll be the biggest study ever done on the etiology of obesity, and there'll be news of this coming out sometime in the next month, I hope. And we're talking, I'll be in New York in a week on my family vacation, and I'm meeting with some Wall Street people to see if I can convince them to spend money to do research that might change how people think. You know, I have—I mentioned that nutrition science. My um, uh, role model is Don Quixote. In um, in one way, it's Ahab. So you know, I'm obsessed with this energy balance nonsense, and so I'm still trying to raise money to get people to see that that is not you now whether calories count or not. It's simply the wrong paradigm to explain obesity. So we're trying to raise money for other studies that could do that. But uh, very much, uh, like I said, a virtual organization. There's three of us who self-associate with NUSI in three different cities, and we actually pay an accountant to pay bills, and the rest of us work for free, so.
4: Thank you. Hi, I just want to say I'm Buca from San Francisco. I help people, I'm a nutrition coach, transition to low-carb and keto diets, so I'm a big fan of all your writing, and. Um, without sounding like a a fangirl. That's, I'll stop there. Um, I did listen to your interview with Joe Rogan and a lot of it just was over my head, I'll be honest. Two things stand out to me and as an aha moment, so I hope, I really hope this doesn't come off as disrespectful or putting you on the spot. Two things, I said, Gary is A, a wrestler, former wrestler, and B, sometimes applies nicotine to his skin, aha, that's why he's thin, that's why I look for outlier reasons for things. I'm a total skeptic. Okay. And I said to myself, maybe the answers for us culturally
2: have, like have,
4: have less to do with food, have the non food solutions. So I want to get your perspective on exogenous ketones as a possible solution, you know, and these other um, biohacks that are coming out in every direction as solutions. Will that disrupt? the medical field, because I agree about the authority piece that you said today. We have too much vested interest in the systems, so what will upend that? And for you, maybe it's because you're a former athlete, maybe it's because you have a way to suppress your appetite.
2: Okay, well, two things. First of all, I was a former boxer, not a wrestler, and I worry (laughs) all the time that the reason I can't remember my children's name is because of the five concussions I had between (laughs) football and boxing, and I see those traumatic Spongiform encephalopathy photos, and I think, oh Jesus, it's going to be bad. So if it does get bad, hopefully we blame it on boxing, not on not eating enough carbs, which is possible. Um, second, I didn't put nicotine on my skin. I chewed nicotine, nicorettes, because I quit smoking 15 years ago. Nicotine is a wonderful drug if you need a focus. I think I chewed my last nicorette last week. So. Um, <laughs> Thank you. My name is Gary Taubs. I'm a nicotine (laughs) addict. Um, uh, I'm less interested in the biohacks. I'm interested in establishing what the causes of these diseases are, because that to me is the only way, the fundamental step to preventing an epidemic is unambiguously establishing the cause. Now we know what we have to remove and as long as we think the cause is multifactorial, complex, and primarily sedentary behavior eating too much, if they're right, then it's hopeless. And they're probably not right. So that's what interests me. The biohacks—they'll help people. With, you know, I get nervous anytime you do anything. Um, There're going to be good things and bad things. There's going to be—I don't think there's a free lunch, so I worry about unintended consequences. And um, you know, it's just the way I am. I do anxiety very well. Um, I do think there are ways the world change. I mean, clearly that athletes have embraced this way of eating is changing the world. You know, you see the, one of the things that got us carb loading was carb loading for athletes. And if we have athletes doing ketogenic diets. Then, and increasing their performance, then other people will do it and that'll spread and that'll help get the word out. I do think that diabetes is like a homeostatic mechanism created to get us back on the right road because we've so misunderstood this disease and the tide of diabetes is just washing over every doctor's office in the country. People are desperate for solutions. And then companies like Verta come along and say, here's a solution. And ketogenic diets are a solution and low-carb diets are a solution. So more and more doctors are saying, I have to do something. It's not just about that fat person who is a glutton and I'm never gonna convince to change. So I think that'll change the world. I mean, it's horrible. But I think it got to the point that there's so much pressure, that so many people are saying to themselves, how do I stop this? And clearly, you could, if you can get reverse somebody's diabetes, you're gonna care a little bit less about what happens to their LDL particle number. So I think the world, again, those are things that will change it that are working in our favor. Um, Athletes going on low-carb ketogenic diets. You know, and then on the flip side, you've got the whole vegan-vegetarian thing, which sometimes I wonder if animal fats are necessary for good cognition. Disc of Light